Today's class is dedicated in honor of Chaya Toiva Gittel Bas Rachel, as well as Yaakov Yosef Ben Rachel, as well as Rivka Bas Rachel, to find a good Shidduch, easy and smooth, La Richis Yomim Vishanim Toivas. Amen, Kenyihi Ratzin. We're going to explore today a very enigmatic statement of the sages, of the rabbis, of the Talmud, and the Medrash. It's really very perplexing. It's one of those statements, you read it and you wonder, what am I missing here? What is going on? It's extremely difficult to understand and comprehend. But let me begin, before I begin, before we get into it, with a line, I think it's attributed to... uh, the French philosopher Voltaire, who was uh, quite a great anti-Semite, even if he was considered a great philosopher. And he said, my life's dream has been a perpetual nightmare. Somebody else once said, a professor is someone who talks in someone else's sleep. And finally, somebody else said, I never sleep comfortably except when I am at a sermon. They tell an anecdote about a security guard who was watching, he was guarding the home of his boss. In the middle of the night, he has a dream. His boss is supposed to get on a plane the next day, and in his dream, unfortunately, something terrible happens to the plane. There's a crash, nobody survives. So he wakes up, he calls his boss at home, and he says, listen, I know this sounds crazy, but I had this devastating, horrible dream. I'm begging you, dear boss, don't take that plane tomorrow. Insanely enough, the boss decides to listen to him, and he doesn't take the plane. The next day, unfortunately, there's a tragedy. Something terrible happens to this plane. The relieved boss, whose life was just saved, calls the young man to his office, and he gives him a very handsome reward, and then he fires him. Curious. Why he fired him, he says his boss, I don't understand. Why are you dismissing me from my job? And the boss says, you were sleeping on the job. This is an introduction to the question I want to raise today. It's the opening of Parshish Kairach. Kairach, the Levite, the son of Yitzhar, the son of Kohas, the son of Levi, the son of Amram, the cousin of Moshe Rabbeinu, cousin of Aaron, stages a mutiny, a rebellion against Moshe, the leader, and Aaron, his brother, the high priest. It's not just an individual rebellion of Kairach. The Torah says he manages to gather 250 leaders of the community, people who are dignified personalities, men of renown, and then there is Dasan and Aviram and Oin ben Peles. There is really a, a respectable uh, crowd that stages this rebellion. And their words are very succinct and simple. They gather on Moshe and Aaron and they say, Rav Lachem, it's enough. It's enough of what you have. The whole community is holy. God dwells among everybody. Why do you guys exalt yourself on the congregation of God? 
Moshe falls on his face and then he speaks to Kairach and to the entire community that staged this rebellion. And he says, in the morning, God will ascertain and notify if we are just dishonest, if we're basically engaging in nepotism, or we are indeed loyal messengers of the divine. And he asks of them, he challenges them, each of these people who wants to, uh, who wants, who want to replace the position of Aaron the priest to prepare incense and they're going to offer burning incense in the sanctuary. And he says, we'll see who God chooses. The person who Hashem chooses, he shall remain holy. And then he says these words, Rav Lachem Bnei Levi. Too much for you. Sons of Levi. Rav Lachem means, Rav means a lot, an abundance. Like, <coughs> Rav is great. Like something that's abundant is Rav, a lot. Rav Lachem Bnei Levi. You have too much, too much for you, sons of Levi. Which perhaps means you're demanding something that is really beyond what belongs to you. This is... This is beyond your limits. Relax. Okay. One of the methods and one of the tools that have been employed throughout the generations, already from Moshe, to interpret Torah, is what's called Gzerishava. Gzerishava is one of the 13 formulas, one of the 13 methods employed to interpret Torah. It means we always compare words. When a term is used in one place of Torah, and an identical term, especially if it's unusual, is used in another place in Torah, there is always that idea that there was a copy-paste here situation. Today we can understand it with copy-paste. It's not just the term happened to end up here and happened to end up here. No. The Rebbeinah Shalalom God copied and pasted, which means the two incidents, even if they seem very remote, are deeply connected. And this is true in halacha. We'll sometimes compare the laws that apply in that case to this case, even though they're two completely different cases because of a similar term that's used. The Balhaturim, Reina Yaakov Balhaturim, often uses this method in his commentary on Chumash. He calls it Mesoira, which means he will search. He will search before Google. He's going to search where this term, where this word expression is used in the whole of Tanakh. He'll say, this word you'll find four times, or three times, or two times, or five times, and then he'll show the connection. This is one of the contributions of Rabbeinu Yaakov Baal Haturim from the 14th and 15th century. We discussed it a few times with different words. In this case, the Medrash Rabbah does this in Parshish Kairach, and the Gemara discusses this in Meseches Saita. And it takes us to a different story. From Numbers, we go to the book of Deuteronomy. The second portion, Ve'eschanan and Sefer Dvarim. Moshe has been denied at that point the ability to go into the land of Israel, to the land of Canaan. And he opens up Parshas Ve'eschanan just a few weeks before his death. And he says, I beseeched God to allow me entry into the promised land. Please, let me cross this, let me cross the Jordan and see the good land that is on the other side of the Jordan, the good mountain. Hashem refuses. And Moshe says these words. God refuses. 
Hashem gets upset with me because of you and he does not listen to me. God says to me, this is too much for you. Ravlach, this is too much for you. Do not continue to speak to me further about this matter. Ascend to the top of the mountain, raise your eyes westward, northward, southward, eastward, and see with your eyes the land because you're not going to cross the Jordan River. Come the sages and say, look, the expression that Moshe used when he spoke to the children of Kairach and his, and his group, Rav Lachem B'nai Levi, is an almost identical expression that Hashem uses towards Moshe at the end of his life, Rav Lach. Of course, Moshe is speaking to in the plural, Rav Lachem, because he's speaking to a group of people. God is speaking to one person, Moshe, so he says Rav Lach, not Rav Lachem, he's speaking to the individual. And here I quote the Gemara. Says the Gemara in Saita Dafyud Gimalamid Base. Vayomer Hashem Elai Rav Lach, Omar Rablevi, Rabbi Levi said, Birav Biser, Birav Bisruhu. Birav Biser Rav Lachem, Birav Bisruhu Rav Lach. What comes around goes around, says Rabbi Levi. Moshe used the words Rav to inform Kairach and his group that they must step down from their demands. He used the words Rav, Rav Lachem B'nai Levi, this is too much for you. And God employed the same term to inform Moshe Rabbeinu that he must not, not ask any longer to go into the promised land. He must stay behind in the Transjordan where he will die and he will be, remain on Mount Nevoi where he will be buried together with the entire generation of Jews who left Egypt, the adults, who all passed away in the desert, including Moshe, including his older brother Aaron, including his older sister Miriam, as discussed in Parshas Chukas, just next week after Parshas Kairach. God uses the same term that Moshe said to Kairach, God uses to Moshe, Rav. Wow. What is this supposed to mean? What is Rabbi Levi in the Talmud Saita trying to teach us? What's the message he's trying to convey? Was Moshe right? Was Moshe wrong? Is this a critique of Moshe? Is this just a random observation? It's obviously not a random observation. There's some meaningful observation. What is the observation Rabbi Levi is saying? In Saita and Talmud, it's debatable, it's ambiguous, and I'm soon going to offer a suggestion. But I want to quote this teaching in Medrash. There, it's very explicit. In Medrash Rabbah Parshas Kairach, the Medrash says as follows. Moshe said, Rav Lachem B'nei Levi, too much for you, sons of Levi. Amar HaKadosh Baruch Hu God responds to Moshe, At Machis Bechutra, you struck them with a staff. Chutra is a stick. Remember in Chad Gadia. And that which you use to strike others comes back to strike you. Wow. The stick that you use to strike Kairach and his group by saying, that stick comes back to strike me. The methods and instruments I use to strike you, it just comes back. What do they say? You point a finger at somebody and you're pointing three fingers at yourself. That very stick comes back. You told them, Rav Lachem, too much for you. Tomorrow you're going to hear those words about you. Rav Lach. 
It's too much for you, Moshe. It's enough for you. This is so difficult to understand. Help me understand this. It would seem from this Madrasha commentary that Moshe committed an offense, an offense when he said these words against Karech and his colleagues. And as a result, God reciprocates with this firm expression, you struck them with a stick. That stick is going to be used against them. But one second, read the story of Karech. It's very clear that God himself punishes them very severely. He took Moshe's side. He didn't take Karech's side. Moshe was chastising individuals who were rebelling against the very mission entrusted to him and the very mission entrusted to Aaron. These were rabble-rousers. And thus they were defeated in a very tragic situation and the 250 people were burnt when they burnt, when they, uh, when they brought the incense as an offering in the sanctuary. The Medrash intimates that Moshe's dialogue with Kairach was somewhat flawed relative to his level, but flawed. He struck them with a stick and this stick came back against him. How are we supposed to understand this? Now I should say, in the Gemara it's not explicit. The Gemara just makes an observation. These are the words he used. These were the words he heard. Berav biser, berav bisruhu. How are we to understand this medrash? It seems that the message is that what was wrong, so to speak, with Moshe's words, and I say wrong relative to his level, was not that he criticized Kairach and his 250 partners. As we recall, God himself unequivocally embraced Moshe's position. And the rebels suffered, and they suffered a tragic fate. If Moshe was wrong and they were right, it wouldn't have happened that way. Still, the Medrash says, you struck them with a stick. And that stick will come back. Apparently, it was Moshe's expression to them the way he disagreed with them, the way he criticized them, that is perceived in this Mandrashic interpretation as wanting. And I think we are introduced here once again to the layers of subtlety that define Torah and define the text of Torah. On one level, we read a story, and it's clearly a sin. On another level, the Midrashic tradition will convey subtle and complex motivations behind the sin. Suddenly it won't be so black and white. Suddenly Moshe is the one who's found wanting because he struck them with a stick. The moral path is not always black and white. There are so many more subtleties. The Kutzker Rebbe once remarked, the Kutzker, great Rebbe of Kutzker, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Morgenstern, he remarked to a very self-righteous individual and he said, from the, Jew, from the sins of the Jews in the desert, the Almighty constructed his blueprint for life, his Torah. From your mitzvahs, a Torah will not be composed. You see, the Jews who staged the mutiny against Moshe and against Aaron, that mutiny, that rebellion, even though it was wrong. But what we are seeing here is, it wasn't just about an egocentric tyrant and dictator who manipulates people simply to garner power, prestige, and influence. 
rather behind their unjustified rebellion, as unjustified and inappropriate as it was, lay a dream, a noble dream. These individuals yearned to be elevated to the spiritual level of Aaron, to experience, like the high priest of Israel, intimacy with the divine. Moshe clearly tells it to them. Rashi says, Moshe says, what should I tell you? In pagan religions, there's many gods and many priests and many modes of service. He says, we have one God, one Torah, one ark, one altar, one temple, and one high priest. He says, you want to be a high priest? I also want it. Wow. Those are powerful. I also want it. Apparently, they crave to transcend the limits of their identities and become spiritual giants. At least it's one way of reading the story. The rebellion was a mistake, but the passion behind it was noble. They wished to break out of their borders, the borders of their body, the borders of their psyches, and enter into a metaphysical promised land of holiness. It says about Nadav and Aviyu. Nadav and Aviyu were the two sons of Aaron who also sinned. They also brought incense as an offering. They were not instructed to do so. A fire came out and consumed them. And the Eirachayim, Rabbi Nuchayim ben Atar, the 18th century great mystic from Morocco, and then Jerusalem, known as the Eirachayim, he passed away in Tasvav Tamos, Tovkuf. Tovkuf would be 1740. He, he has an expression at the beginning of Achrei Mois, that they kissed the divine. Nadav and Aviyu kissed the divine. Moshe was swift to condemn not only their mutiny, but also the dream that birthed it. Rav lachem b'nei Levi, this is too much for you, children of Levi, he exclaimed. Your imagination must have limits. You have to recognize who you are and not dream of possibilities beyond your capabilities. But Moshe also had a dream that could not be realized. Moshe yearned to enter into a promised land, and it was not the flaffle and the lafa and the tchina that Moshe craved that so attracted him. It was the holiness of the land that he yearned to experience. Just like Kairach's colleagues, he too had a very noble dream, but one that reality would not materialize, would not realize. Because of the destiny of mankind and God's mysterious plans in history, it was not possible for Moshe to enter the land. He can bring his people to the border of the land. He can see the land, but he cannot cross the actual border. The synergy between Moshe and the land, writes the Arizal, would prove to be too powerful, eliminating all possibility for failure and distortion, and therefore eliminate all possibility for growth that comes from failure. The grand plan of history could not allow Moshe to come into his land. His dream cannot come into fruition. The borders that Moshe imposed upon others were imposed upon him around 40 years later. He told Kairach's people, Rav Lachem Bnei Levi, too much, too much dreaming. And this was the identical response he received. Rav Lach, it's too much for you, Moshe. The Medrash is teaching us we ought never to put reins on other people's dreams or on our own dreams. 
Dreams and aspirations are the progenitors of discovery and transformation. Fear or narrow vision or pettiness or insecurity or depression or never to obstruct the pathways of your fertile imagination. Not of you, not of your loved ones, not of your children, not of your friends, not of your colleagues. We should encourage our children and our students to allow their dreams to soar. Sure, not every dream can be fulfilled. But to cease dreaming out of fear of disappointment is to deny the gift of freedom that God has bestowed upon us and to deny so many dreams that could come into fruition. I once read a line by Mark Twain. 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things that you didn't do than by the ones that you did do. So throw off the bowline, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds in your sails, explore, dream, discover. I once read something that was really very moving. Dr. Judah Falkman keeps a reproduction of a 1903, 1903, just for the history records, that's 11 years before the beginning of the First World War. The Lubavitcher Rebbe is one years old. It's 10 years before the Bayless trial and before the sinking of the Titanic. So this is an article in the New York Times, 1903, and he keeps it, Dr. Falkman keeps it in his archives. In this article, two professors of physics explain why airplanes could possibly, why airplanes could not possibly fly. No matter what, it's just impossible. The article appeared in 1903, just three months before the Wright brothers split the air at Kitty Hawk. In the early 1970s, Dr. Falkman proposed an idea in cancer research, but it did not fit into what scientists knew, quote-unquote, to be true. The idea was that tumors did not generate new blood vessels to feed themselves and grow. He was convinced, Dr. Falkman was convinced, that they did. So you had the truth of the scientific community. Tumors did not generate new blood vessels to feed themselves and grow. He decided they did, but colleagues kept telling him, you're studying dirt. Those were the words, you're studying dirt. Meaning, this project is futile, irrelevant, and rubbish science. Dr. Falkman disregarded the research community for two decades. He met with hostility or disinterest as he pursued his work in this field, the study of the growth of new blood vessels. At one research convention, half the audience walked out. He heard somebody say, he's only a surgeon. But he always believed that his work might help stop the growth of tumors, and it might help find ways to grow blood vessels when they're needed, for example, around clogged arteries in the heart. Falkman and his colleagues discovered the first inhibitors in the 1980s. Today, I think it's more than 100,000 or 150,000 cancer patients who are benefiting from the research he pioneered. His work is now recognized as being on the forefront in the fight of curing cancer. There is a fine line between persistence and abstinacy. 
There's a fine line between just being stubborn, stuck in the quagmire of my positions, of my traumas, of my pain, and having the courage to dream from a place of inner freedom and confidence. When I was growing up, there was somebody in my home, my house, <laughs> my home, who would always sing this song. Then they, they, they put some Jewish words onto it, they put some, some Jewish message onto it, but the words were meaningful. You remember? Those were the days, my friend. We thought they'd never end. We'd sing and dance forever and a day. We'd live the life we choose. We'd fight and never lose. For we were young and sure to have our way. La 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 Hashem Elech Hashem Oalach Hashem Yimlach Liyaylam Vaoed. But the song continues. Then the busy years went rushing by us. We lost our starry notions on the way. When we're young, we all dream. We all have some of those starry notions. Most of us can remember that as children, we had that window in the house. You remember that window that you gazed out of for hours when you came home from school? You remember that plant in the garden, the tree in the forest, the bench in the park, the brook in your vicinity where you could stand for hours and just steer and dream. You dreamt of a pure, innocent, wholesome life. This is before DS, before video games. <laughs> you sat on that tree, you looked at the sky, and you dreamt. You just dreamt. You allowed your imagination to fly. No inhibitions, no boundaries. Many of us once owned powerful dreams to reach the heavens in our own way and beyond. It may have been the dream of a blissful marriage, of a warm, open, and magnificently beautiful home, of an amazing career, of a special relationship with friends, of a special relationship with your children, with your siblings, with your mom, with your dad, with God of making a special difference in people's lives in your own life, or of just living a life of truth, of honesty, of authenticity, of inner calmness, serenity, tranquility, no pettiness, no resentment, no politics, no animosity. You remember? You remember? But at some point in life, isn't there somebody who tells us, Rav Lach! Too much dreaming. Come on, open your eyes and put one, one, one leg, one foot before the other and just do what you have to do. They cut down the dream. They lower the expectations. Just survive. Pay your bills. And if you can enjoy Sunday football, don't ask for more. You can pay your bills. You can pay tuition. You can cover a mortgage. You're already ahead of many, 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 many others. Sometimes we ourselves tell ourselves those words, Rav Lach. These are harsh words. Rav Lach, too much for you. Just be a good person. Just be a simple person. They come in many different ways, these words. They're manifested in so many different expressions. It may have been the death of a mother or the death of a father at a young age 
bringing to an abrupt end the nurturing, the security, the sense of safety that a child so desperately needs from parents. It may have been another form of pain, abuse, virtual, emotional, sexual, or any other loss that you experienced during your life. It may have been neglect. It may have not been uh, powerful, intense, conspicuous trauma. But just over the years, you know, things add up to cut down our dreams. To cut down our joy, our optimism, our ability to dance till the end of love, till the end of the universe. It may be profound fear, shame, insecurity, guilt, disappointment, distrust, or other forms of emotional trauma that afflicted us or continue to afflict us in our lives, shattering our own inner sacred and divine dreams. It may have been a person, a teacher, a principal, a friend, a boss, a parent, a colleague, who showed cynicism, who expressed cynicism, who mocked your idealism, who taught you to come down from your high tree to become realistic, grounded, practical. And then we all create substitute dreams in lieu of the first ones that were lost, but they're never the same. The second set of dreams usually lack the magic and the innocence of the original dreams that no longer exist in the fore of our consciousness, in the, in the revealed part of our consciousness. In the depth of our hearts, we crave to reclaim something of the wonder of our old aspirations, but it's to no avail. The clock of life does not turn back, and those words, Rav Loch, resonate in my heart or in your heart. So God tells Moses, reality may sometimes smack us in the face, but never ever deprive people from the dream. Never stop dreaming yourself, and never cut down the dream of somebody else. Because in the words of the Baal Shem Tev, in the place where your dreams are, that is where you are. Dreams are the human way of protesting the status quo. Dreams are our way of protesting injustice, abuse, wrongdoing, evil. Dreams are the way that we begin to emancipate ourselves from the shackles of dishonesty and fear. They demonstrate the pulse of life, an ambition for growth, for growth, a frustration with the present. And isn't that the genesis of all achievement? To quote good old late Ted Kennedy, after he lost the campaign for nomination as the Democratic presidential candidate against Jimmy Carter, this was at the Democratic Convention in New York City, August 12, 1980, said Ted Kennedy, for all those whose cares have been our concern, the work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream shall never die. A Jew once came to the Panovich Rav, the great Rabbi Yosef Shloyme Kahan Manzeich at Tzadik Levracha, who was a Rav in Panovich in Litin, Lithuania, lost his family in the Holocaust, came to Eretz Yisrael, rebuilt a family, married, rebuilt a family, and built so many great institutions in the city of B'nai Brak and beyond. He was a very ambitious and great man. 
And somebody once was hearing, listening to him about his dreams and ambitions, and he said, Ponovicherov, ir chalamt, you're dreaming. It's like you tell somebody you're dreaming. And he looked and he smiled and he said, Emes, it's true, I'm dreaming, but it's not during my sleep. I'm dreaming while I'm, while I'm awake. And to dream when you're awake is critical, is vital, it's important. Now there's a delicate balance here. What about the frustration? What about the fact that I can't fulfill these dreams? What if these dreams are just completely unrealistic? Shouldn't we be thankful to those who schlep us down and say, hey, 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 you're dreaming. <laughs> you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be disappointed. Aren't they really saving us? Isn't there really another side to the picture? Sure, Rabbi Waiwai, it's nice to dream and dream. I'm going to reach the heavens and I'm going to change the whole world. But as a day passes and a week passes and a year passes and I'm just trying to struggle for survival, shouldn't there be a kind person who says, Ravlach, relax, calm down. You're asking for too much. What is the balance? What is the balance? And I think here we come to a second interpretation. And it's so beautiful how we have both of these teachings juxtaposed together in these very words. As I mentioned, in the Medrash, this teaching is quoted as reprimanding Moshe. You struck them with a stick. That stick comes back to strike you. I take away the dream from you. And that happens to me as well. Because those who cut down the freedom of other people, I'm convinced, they are cutting down their own freedom. They deprive themselves from freedom. Pare, God says, I will make his heart hard. I will harden his heart. He will not let you in. But he says, what about free choice? People have to have free choice. You can't punish Pare when you are when you cause them to be stubborn. One of the answers is very obvious and deeply psychological. Pare's mission statement was to deprive people from freedom. He turned the Israelites into miserable slaves. And what's the result of that? You lose your own freedom. When I take away yours, I lose mine. It happens throughout history all the time. But it's true also in much more subtle ways. I cut down your dreams, and that itself is the stick that cuts down my dreams. But when you look in the Gemara, the Gemara doesn't say that God reprimanded Moses. It just says, Moshe used the words, Rav Lachem, Berav Biser, Berav Bisru. And those words were used to him as well. And maybe there's another way of looking at it. And this is actually a perspective that is very, po- very positive spin on it. Moshe was telling the children of Levi, the Bnei Kairach, he was also telling them something very comforting. You don't have to be Aaron to be good, to have value. You don't have to. You don't have to mimic my brother Aaron in order to feel holy. God's holiness can be found within each person's soul, within each and every heart, within your vocation and destiny. All people are born originals. Why do most of us die as copies? Don't try to live somebody else's life. That life is taken. They asked a 106-year-old woman, what's the advantage of living to 106? She said, much less peer pressure. 
Perhaps in some ways these people were feeling there's one path to holiness. If I can only work in the sanctuary as a Kohen and go into the Holy of Holies as Aaron, then we'll be close to God. That's what they tell Moses. All the Jews are holy. Why are you exalted? And the mistake is, Rav Lachem Bnei Levi, don't you realize? God is everywhere. You could touch truth in every situation, in every home, in every milieu, in every generation, in every heart, in every brain. Truth is infinite. It encompasses every person and all aspects of their lives. It's not like I have to be you or I have to be this in order to find truth. If it's true, it's MS. Aleph, Mem, Tzav, it says in Yerushalmi, the word emes, which is the Hebrew word for truth, it begins the first letter is the first letter of the alphabet. The middle letter, mem, is the middle letter of the alphabet. Mem, middle. And tough is the end, the last letter of the alphabet. Sheker, a lie, are three letters that are right near each other. Shin, kuf, and resh are right near each other. Lies always exist in one environment. You look at it from a different perspective and it melts away. But emes, in the beginning and in the middle and the end, it's true. Truth encompasses the entire life, the totality of the person. All of my moods, all of my days, all of my schedules, all of my ups and downs. I can always connect to truth because that's what truth means. Truth is always available and always present if I just tune into it in every person's life, every encounter, every experience. Behold, Rachecha da Eyu, for who King Solomon says, in all your ways you could know him, you could know reality, you could connect to the soul. Rav Lachem, it's enough. Rav Lachem could be translated in two ways. Rav Lachem, it's too much, but Rav Lachem means you have so much, you have enough. You don't need to be Amaisha, you don't need to be Aaron, because if you would need to be Maisha and Aaron, you would have been Maisha and Aaron. Every soul has its own mission, its own journey. A few years ago, we did a woman's class. You could see it on the yeshiva.net. It's a very worthwhile class to watch about the children of Kairach who were singing in purgatory. It's titled, Singing in the Abyss. Kairach's great mistake that some Jews are holier than others. I would, I would suggest that it's because it continues this theme. Singing in the Abyss. If you go to the yeshiva.net and you go to Torah Korach, you'll find it. Singing in the Abyss. He said, some Jews are in the abyss and some Jews are in heaven. The children of Kairach, the Talmud says, in the abyss, they began to sing. <laughs> they discovered the mistake. Rav Lachem, you're enough. You are enough. You have everything that you need in order to fulfill your mission in life. As a person, as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother, as a human being, as a Jew. You have everything. Rav Lachem, I don't have to be you. You have it all in you because your soul is a chilek elekami mamish. It's a piece of God. You are an ambassador of infinity in this world. You're an ambassador of love, light, and hope. You have it inside of you. And it's going to be expressed through your unique brain and your unique mind and your unique body and your unique soul. Moshe, 40 years later, is craving to go into the land of Israel. That was his dream. 40 years he's been yearning, longing, trying to get this this place. He's gotten there. And then he's denied the privilege. And he turns to God and he says, You have showed me so much kindness. Let me cross the border and go into the land. And God says no. But he doesn't just say no. He says, Don't look at your life as a failure, as a disappointment. Don't look at yourself in the mirror and say, 
It was all worthless and insignificant and valueless. I did not fulfill the ultimate mission. Your mission was to bring the people till the promised land. See it. Show it to them. And the next generation will enter into the promised land. That's not called failure. It's called fulfilling the mission for which your soul came down into this world. It was to bring us to the gates of the promised land and show us how we can enter into it. That's not called failure. So many of us, we try our whole life to achieve certain goals, certain dreams. We want to enter into the promised land. And the last moment you feel it's snatched away from you. Whatever that promised land means for you. And you look in the mirror and you say, what a loser, what a failure. Those voices, conscious or unconscious, that delegitimize you. Can you hear God telling you, Ravloch, it's enough. It's enough. You did exactly what you were supposed to do. Standing ovation, Moshe, standing ovation. You have nurtured these people for 40 years like a shepherd. Unwaveringly, unwaveringly and incessantly with the deepest love and dedication and affection. You put yourself out for them and you were ready to die for them more than once. Moshe, you're enough. Moshe, you're enough. Can you hear those words of God to you? Dream. Don't stop dreaming. But don't allow dreams to become neurotic sources of endless disappointment and frustration and a lack of tranquility and a lack of serenity. Dream, my boy, dream. Dream, my son. Dream, my daughter. Dream, my friend. Dream and don't stop dreaming. Dreams, as we said, mirror the pulsating vibrancy of life. Don't say to others and to other people, Rav Lach in the sense, too much, stop dreaming. Just lower your expectations. You're not changing anything. Don't do that to yourself. Don't do that to others. But then can you also look at yourself and say, Rav Lach. Today I had the opportunity to live life to the fullest according to my capabilities. I used my tools to serve my God, to serve my homeland, to serve my people, to serve my loved ones, to be an ambassador of love and truth and hope and light and wisdom and authenticity and redemption. Celebrate it and continue to dream. Thank you very much. We'll take some questions. I have a question. Yes. So um, what I'm understanding is it's like dreaming with two feet on the ground. So if your dreams don't happen. So, for example, I just encountered somebody who had these great dreams for her children. You know, she has. Sorry if it's noisy. She has, you know, a bunch of children and she expected them all to turn out a certain way. That was her dream. Of course, she should have that dream. They're all going to be amazing. And then she like vulnerably put it out there like I realized that my children were not going to be cookie cutters and meanwhile like so it's so sad to see the disappointment in her in her psyche that her kids didn't turn out the way she wanted to them but then again so that's hard on the children that their mother's dreams were crushed yet do you take away that dream from a mother great question wow Great question. A mother dreams that her children should 
turn out to be a certain way and those dreams are shattered, the children feel the disappointment on the face of their mother. Should we tell that mother, stop dreaming? I think there's a very, very subtle and sensitive distinction we have to make between dreaming our own dreams and dreaming on behalf of our children. And I know this is not easy for any of us, but I cannot dream your dreams. (laughs) I really can't. I love my children, but I don't own my children. And I can't own my children's dreams. I can't. Yes, they're little, they're cute. We brought them to the world, we raised them, we nurtured them, but they don't belong to us. They have their own souls, their own unique virtues, and their own unique challenges. Sometimes we contribute to those challenges. Sometimes it's really not about us. And we have to respect that. So yes, of course, each of us has dreams for our children. We're human, we're normal, we're parents. I would love to see certain things in my children. But then I have to grow up, take responsibility, and say, my real dream for my children is that they should discover their dream. That's what my dream is. My boy, my dear daughter, my dear son, I want to help you discover your dream. I believe in your dream, and I'm going to be here to support your dream and to take pride in it. So I just have one more point. We have all these basics that we go into parenting with, Maidani, Shema Yisrael. Where is this basic? What taught us this? Because what taught us to differentiate between me and my child? Like where it seems so basic, but it doesn't feel like it was taught basically. It's a great question. We're all educating our children and inculcating them with, with information and values from the youngest age saying Maida'ani and Shema Yisrael, and that's what Jews have done thousands of years, and that's why we're here. <laughs> we're here because of the mitzvah of education. tell your child. Absolutely. But that's the idea. The idea is if, 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 you, if you believe and we believe Jews embrace the values of Torah as the most sacred, healthy values in life, physically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, for this world, for the next world, so just like we nurse our children and we give them the oxygen they need and the home they need and the love they need and the food they need and the nutrition they need and the shelter they need and the security they need, I want to give them the values that will help them most to be able to dream the best dreams, to be able to become the best people possible. Let's look at certain facts. We have certain perspectives and values that many of us hold dear because these values were held dear by thousands of years of our ancestors, with all their dysfunctionality and with all of their challenges, but their resilience and their faith and their fortitude and their wisdom and their spirituality and their amuna and their, their connection to Torah is why there's a amazing Jewish people today and amazing Jewish families today. So, of course, I want to give that gift to my child, and I want to give that gift with my heart and my soul. But I'm giving that gift to my child as something that ultimately will become her, his or her. It's not a form of ownership and control. It's I, I'm here to polish your diamond and I'm going to give you as a diamond everything I know to be wonderful and, and, and blessing and, and a blessing and, and true. And I hope and pray that you will be able to take this and utilize it in the most effective way to be able to fulfill your mission. 
And as that journey continues, we all know that there are setbacks and there are mistakes and there are failures and there are disappointments, but the connection should never cease, as we often speak about. And not only that, I have to be able to take pride in where my child is and appreciate their efforts and appreciate their struggles and appreciate where they are. And this is not easy. This is, this is, this is, this is emotionally heart-wrenching. Okay. I'm not gonna, this is not a lecture I'm giving now. A sermon. This is emotionally challenging for so many people. I think for many of us, maybe for all, not for all of us, but for many of us, to be able to have that delicate balance, really letting go and realizing these are God's children. And yes, of course, I cherish Torah and I want my kids to hold on to Torah for the rest of their life. Well, we, we, but let's go one step further. They have Torah in the essence of their soul. I don't, I didn't create my child to be Jewish. My child is a Jew. My child has his or her eternal relationship with God irrelevant of his illustrious mother or her illustrious mother and father. That's a very, very deep relationship. It's their own relationship. And I crave and I hope and yearn to help them in that journey, to help them in that relationship. But ultimately, the dream belongs to them, not to me. Could I I say something? Sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think what Dina said um, most like critically is the disappointment that the children feel and like, how do we avoid that while still having dreams, right? And giving our children an image of what's possible for them. So I was thinking as she was speaking, maybe the idea is that we have the dream, but we open our minds and our hearts and open the circle to to widen the possibility of how that dream could be expressed beyond our own set ideas and allow that to be in that in the child space. Not what we imagine how it should be expressed. Like we want all the good things for our kids, but to be more open and widen the circle of what that potentially could look like and not be stuck on a limited way of that being expressed. Maybe that's how we hold on to the dream, but avoid severe disappointment because if we have a very narrow frame of what that dream could look like, inevitably we probably will be disappointed because our children are not us. They could be like us, they could have some of us, but they're not us and their journeys are not ours. So maybe maybe that's how we hold on to both. Beautiful. Thank you, thank you. May I say something, please? Yeah, 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 you could say. Thank you, Rabbi YY. Um, so... Like, when I listen to this, I'm so grateful that so many of my dreams growing up did not manifest. Because, like, for example, when I was younger, I wanted to be famous. Not even in a bad famous way, but that's unrealistic. I know that's not necessarily in line with Torah. At the same time, um, my parents, I, I had to, like, I had unrealistic dreams, but I did have people that like planted seeds along the way telling me, you know, you're not going to really make money that way or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, so I had to go on my own journey and experience so many different things. And then that helped me change my dreams and rehome like what I thought I needed in life. Um, And I guess like it, but the thing is I'm grateful because my parents kind of, set up a parachute or something um or like a trampoline so uh i did my own thing but then they helped me land safely 
So I guess when I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm really grateful for the people that told me. Beautiful. Listen, that, that's a very important point, that you're thankful that your dreams didn't materialize because a lot of them were immature or foolish, and you're thankful to the people who uh, told you to come down from your high tree. That's why it is so important to have real and deep relationships as we go through the journey of life because although dreams are amazing and incredible and they're the fuel and the engine of human creativity, it's so important to get feedback. You know, if I decide tomorrow that I'm uh, Michael Jordan and I'm going to, uh, you know, be a, a player of that league, it can be very, very disappointing and frustrating. So a person always needs that feedback to be able to understand that your dreams are about who you are and what you're capable of becoming and what your unique mission is and to be responsible, and to be moral, etc. So that's extremely important, obviously. Um, I also want to say that uh, somebody wrote here something very powerful. It says, in, it says about Yosef. Yosef was a dreamer, and his brothers hated him for it. Right? His brothers were jealous. But his father, his father held on to it. His father guarded it. His father preserved it. In other words, his father understood that Yosef's uniqueness is that he's a Baal HaChalomos, as the Torah calls him. He's a master of dreams. He's a dreamer. And Yaakov, even though he was upset about the discord in the family, and he was, you know, he told Yosef, what are you dreaming about? You think your mother is going to come to bow down? Everybody's going to come to bow down? But it says, V'aviv shamar es he kept those dreams alive. He believed in his son's dreaming powers. Now, I want to show you something interesting. How many people in Chumash dream? In the beginning of Chumash, you have very few dreams. You have a dream of Avimelech. Avimelech has a dream. You have a dream of Lavan. You have a dream of Yaakov. Okay, there are a few dreams. But then Yosef starts dreaming in Parshas Vayeshev. He dreams about sheaves, and he dreams about the sun and the moon. And then suddenly... The place goes wild with dreams. Everybody starts dreaming, right? The butler is dreaming, and the baker is dreaming, and Pare has one dream, and Pare has another dream, and everyone is busy interpreting the dreams. Suddenly, the paradigm of reality is dreaming. Why? Because Yosef, that was Yosef's power. Yosef was a dreamer. Yosef was a balachalaymas. And what happens inside of us really affects the whole world. So Yosef's dreams starts creating a ripple effect of, of, of many dreams. And, and listen, his, dream, his dreams come true. It says in Perkeyavis, Hakina v'hataiva v'hakavad in ha'olam. Jealousy, addiction, and the need for validation take you out of the world. So somebody writes here, it should have said, they kill you, mace. What does it mean it takes you out of the world? It doesn't mean you die. It takes you out of the world, meaning God created you as an individual, with an individual mission, with an individual purpose, with your unique DNA sequence. If I am busy being jealous of you, or craving something or somebody else, or needing your validation, then might see in Adam in the I'm taken out from my place in the world. I have my space. I have my contribution. I have my light that I need to exude. I am a a channel for Hashem's unique light that comes through me. And if I'm busy copying you or being jealous of you, even though these are human emotions that we all, many of us experience, 
it's my and it takes me out from my place in the world. There's something called kinasoy from Tarbachachma, which means the jealousy of scribes, of great scholars, increases wisdom. The word is soifrim. Soifra is a scribe. You know, if I'm writing a Sefer Torah, I copy it from another Sefer Torah. Am I copying you? Yeah, I'm copying your Torah scroll to copy it into mine. If I'm a sage and I see, if I want to be a sage and I see great wisdom in somebody, I'm going to copy it into my life, if possible. Kina soifrim, if you're like a scribe, if I take your wisdom and I make it mine, that will increase wisdom. But if I'm just busy being jealous of you, trying to mimic you, then I'm taking, I'm taking myself out of, uh, of the world. Somebody asked, beautiful, thank you to Bashiach. As a parent, I was told, love, 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 more love. As difficult as it might be, as difficult as it might be, you cannot expect. They know what you would like of them. Trust me, they sense it. They sense it and you could never hide it. But never think, I love, they will do what you want. I used to think if I love them, they'll do whatever I want. Really, they know that I'm disappointed anyway. This is a lot of inner work of us parents. This is a lot of inner work to be able to say and really respect my child's journey and really be able to take pride in where that child is unconditionally. Really not just say, I love them and I'm going to nurture them in the abyss, but really take pride of them in, in them. Be able to say like Hashem says about the Jewish people, Neitzer Matai, Maisei Yadai Lehispoir. Each of them is a branch of my plant. It's the work of my hands in which I boast. In which I boast. Do you have that ability? We have to work on it. Sometimes it's the journey of the parents, much more of the children. <laughs> I say that today most of education is educating yourself. <laughs> it's really educating yourself. It's really reaching a very deep place of, of, of maturity and spirituality and closeness to God, and honesty, and dealing with my own traumas, and not projecting my traumas on my children, and praying, praying, and just being there, being showing up, showing up with my full heart, and then good thing, a lot of good things happen. They don't always happen the way we expect them to happen, but they happen. But listen, this is this is you know we're all in the same boat. These are very important questions. I'm not sure there's one answer for everybody and everything. This is obviously not. It's a journey of a lot of self-discovery and a lot of self-scrutiny and honesty in ways that our parents and grandparents maybe didn't have to do or couldn't do or had really different journeys and different challenges. You know, every generation has its own, its own unique calling. And certainly in our generation, this is one of them. We see the explosion of... Uh, of anxiety everywhere, especially among the youth. And it's going to be teaching us a lot of things, but we have to remain vom- we have to remain humble and vulnerable, I think. Very, very vulnerable. <laughs> remain vulnerable and you'll learn a lot of things. Next question. Beautiful questions. Thank you, everybody. Very enriching. I want to say about myself that I am still dreaming. Thank God. Thank you for the encouragement. That's wonderful. And may uh, and may your dreams be materialized, at least many of them. Next question. What if you have a lot of love 
and you have a lot of support, but the voice of Ravloch is coming from within. It's like the imposter syndrome. Good question, good question. So the imposter syndrome was coined in 1978 by two psychologists. <laughs> and basically what they found over the years is that I think 70%, this is what I read, that 70% of people, especially talented people who, who are givers, movers and shakers, suffer from it at one point or another. That's a crazy statistic. It's basically I look in the mirror and I feel I'm unworthy, I'm really a failure, I'm a thug, I'm a thief, I'm stealing other people's materials, I'm fooling the world. And one day somebody is going to point it out, somebody is going to send out a message, a WhatsApp clip, proving the truth of who I am. Imposter syndrome looks <laughs> looks different. Sometimes it has different appearances. Sometimes it's focused more on other people. They're going to find out about me. Sometimes it's focused on me. And then there is the idea of who am I to do this? You know, who, who do I think I am to do this? I'm just a little nobody and I should remain a little nobody. That's also a serious ravloch that we tell ourselves inside. And I want to share something about this because I think it's important to know that some of the greatest Jewish personalities in history struggled with this. Now, you know, I always, I'm always qualify. We should always be very aware and sensitive and have the reverence and awe when we talk about great, great giants because it's important to have that sensitivity and to realize the, to realize the respect that we owe to people about whose depths of their souls we often don't even begin to understand. But still, there's a lot to learn from these stories. If you look at the greatest personalities in Tanakh, you will see that they suffered from this in one way or another. Again, relative to their level, but they suffered from this. Take Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu, right in the beginning, he tells Hashem, Who am I? Me Why are you appointing me? Who am I? Shlach send somebody else. First of all, I don't know how to speak. Second of all, I can't lead. Third of all, nobody's going to believe me. Fourth of all, I'm in, I'm in act. For seven days, God is busy fighting with him. And later, in Parshas Baalaischa, two weeks before Kairach, he asks God to kill him. Kill me so I don't see my own evil, my own downfall. Why? You have a personality like David HaMelech. David HaMelech is considered the greatest poet in Jewish history and the greatest king in Jewish history. And if you read Tehillim, you will see the moments of despair that take him over. I'm a worm. I'm not a person. I'm the disgrace of the people. I'm the scorn of the nation. I'm a stranger to all my brothers. I'm an alien to the children of my mother. Wow. I am overwhelmed. I'm going to be destroyed. Why do you hide your face from me? Serious existential angst that he deals with. Take Yirmiyah Hanavi, Jeremiah, considered one of the greatest prophets. And he wishes, he craves that he would have been a stillborn. He curses the person who told his father, your wife gave birth to a baby. He says, I wish, this is an expression, he says, Haras Oilam Rachma, I wish I would have been impregnated in my mother's womb for eternity. In other words, I would have died in her womb and never come out. This is Yirmiya Navi. God told him. God told him, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and I chose you. 
these people struggled so profoundly. You read through the Tanakh, Eliyahu Anavi, asks to die. Elijah the prophet, he's supposed to tell us Mashiach is coming. He wants to die too. Yoyna wants to die. Better for me to die than to live. These are people who all struggled with their missions. They all felt, for whatever reason, deeply unworthy. And none of and despite this, they all turned out to become incredible leaders who changed the world. And at some point, they all realized the same truth. And that is, I am a shliach, I'm a messenger, I'm an ambassador. Imposter syndrome only holds you hostage when you think that you own your material and you own your life. The moment I open myself up to the truth that I am a channel, I'm a pipe, I'm a conduit for infinity, I just have to be the channel, a transparent channel, then the question, who am I to do this? It's irrelevant. God is working through me. Maybe I'm nobody, and because I'm nobody, I'm everything. Who am I question is a question that sounds very saintly, but it's really very egotistical, and not in a judgmental way. It's, who am I? Who am I? What do you think you are? You're the new man of Yisrael, you're the new saint, you're the new tzaddik of the generation. You, you, the new tzaddikas, the new tzaddik, who, who are you? Just go to your corner and eat Cheerios or kale and leave us alone. And the answer is, yeah, if I'm developing this holier-than-thou attitude and this self-righteous attitude, then I should just sit in my corner and eat kale. But if I can tell myself, who am I? It's a good question. I'm a person who has a lot of flaws. I'm a person who has virtues. But the most important thing is, I was conceived in love. I'm a soul. I'm a piece. I'm a channel for God's infinity, for God's love. That's who I am. It's not about me. I'm a real channel. I am a channel. So I, I'm nothing, and therefore I'm everything. <laughs> My nothingness makes me everything, because it's not about me. And this is not about bashing yourself. No, don't bash yourself. <laughs> Respect yourself. Respect yourself as a channel for God. God's energy is all of reality, including me. And I am that energy. And when I open myself up to that, then what do you mean, who am I? Who am I? I'm a child of Hashem. I'm a channel for Hashem. I'm, a, I'm an ambassador of infinity. That's who I am. Now again, this is a very subtle distinction between arrogance and humility. This is not about arrogance at all. A person could be extremely vulnerable, but that's what all of these leaders realized. And it made it, it, it changed everything. Question, how can I practically lower my expectations for dreams in my child, and give them the space to dream their own and fully support it. I think it's really about going into a very silent and confident place and realizing my child is not here to give me nachas. (laughs) My child was not created so that I could say, I have a picture-perfect life. I have a good car, I have a good home, and I have good children, and I have a good computer, and I have an iPhone 12, and I have a wonderful mouse, and I have a great video camera, and I have a great career, and I have great children. (laughs) 
That's not why my children are created. You should have a good car and a good home and a good phone and a good mouse and a good computer and a good everything with a lot of prosperity for many years. But my child is not created for me to be able to look good in the pictures. Can we really change that paradigm? My child, just like I wasn't created, so my mother or my father should look good in their pictures. Nachas is a very, very dangerous term. It could be misconstrued. Nachas is not about me. It's about my child. When you say your child should give you nachas, we think it means your child was created to give you nachas, right? (laughs) And you define what that nachas is. That's not what it means. Your child should give you nachas means, nachas means serenity. Your child should always give you serenity. Nachas means serenity. Nach, noyach, noyach, menucha, nachas. The Baal Shem Tov was born in the year Nachas, Tov Nun Ches, <laughs> 1698. Hey, I love him, Tov Nun Ches. Did you know that? The Baal Shem Tov was born in the, world, world, in the year of Nachas. Why? Because he taught Jews how to be relaxed. <laughs> Your children should always be a source of relaxation for you, knowing that you're doing the best you can and they're God's children. And all you want to do is cheer them on, give them the four S's, safe, secure, seen, and soothed. Be able to create a space where they know that they're safe with you, they can share with you, you will not judge them. You validate them, you listen to them. You're completely focused into where they are and you want to create a space for them to feel comfortable. You don't need their validation, but they need your deep, deep respect and validation. And when I can do that, it's really not about me dreaming your dream. I want to tune into where you are, what your needs are, what your goals are, what your capabilities are, and help you achieve them. This is a paradigm shift I think we have to make. What if your thoughts aren't so nice and you're working on improving your thoughts and your actions? People think you're nice, but you know you're selfish and you're not nice, and you're just, you're just uh, acting. Is it true that by doing things, your thoughts will change? Um, I feel that nobody really tr- knows me, and I struggle with this very often. You need one or two, three people with whom you're honest with, and you could tell them about how you feel about people, whether it's a good friend, a confidant, a professional, a therapist, a coach, a rabbi, a rebbitzin, somebody you could trust, one person or two people or three people, somebody who's wise, and you could share with them all of your emotions, you could share with them how you feel about people and your selfishness. But let me tell you the bottom line. Kindness, ultimately, is about helping people. I may feel it, I may not feel it. It's great to feel it, but that's not what kindness is. You know, somebody tells me, I really feel like... I want to do you a favor. I feel like it. So I said, could you do it? No, no, I, I, I can't do it now. Somebody else will just do it, but they're not feeling it. <laughs> of course, we want our emotions to be synchronized with our actions, but that's life's work. That's life's work. That's fine. My wife asks me to do something. I may want to go to sleep. I may want to tune out. I may want to explode. I may want to implode. Okay. I'm a person. I have flaws. I have my stuff. Okay. So have compassion for your emotions. 
give them their space. You need to speak to them to some. You need to speak about them to somebody. Speak about them to somebody. But then do the right thing. We can always choose our values, even when our emotions don't are not agreeable. That's fine. It's not called hypocritical. It's called being human. That's the greatness of being a human being. So you don't have to put yourself down. If these are really intense emotions, you need somebody to talk to them about and figure out maybe you're afraid of people, maybe you've been traumatized by people. You know, narcissism, you're calling yourself a narcissist. I don't know that you're a narcissist, but fine. Let's say you are. If you call yourself a narcissist, you usually have a little hold on your narcissism. The real narcissists, I know, don't know it. So that you're already in a much better space. But generally, real narcissists are usually people who are the most insecure. They have no space they could call their own, and therefore they need to own the whole world. They can't make space for another person because that's suicide. I, I so feel I don't exist. I need to exist here and here and here. Every conversation has to be about me and everybody ultimately has to revolve around me. It's the most pathetic form of insecurity. So just realize this. You know, selfishness is also a defense. Everything that comes from the Sahara is a defense. The Tanya says that the Sahara is called klippa. Klippa means a shell. In English, it means today defenses, defenses. Everything your Sahara craves for is a defense against my truth. Yeah, addiction to food, addiction to alcohol, addiction to immodesty, addiction to certain websites, addiction, what do they call it, screen addiction, phone addiction. Uh, all these Yetzirahs in the world are all cover-ups. They are defenses I construct because I don't want to face who I really am. Holiness is about transparency, openness, always. So face it and you'll grow. Good questions, everybody. Good questions. You're making me think, which is sometimes a good thing. Not always, but sometimes. Oh, a lot of questions. Next question. I think, I think there's a big difference between perseverance and stubbornness. Yes, they're synonym, synonyms, but they're very different. Very different. When you disagree with the goal of the person holding steadfast, you call it stubborn. If you agree with his goal, you call it perseverance. Same conduct, same thing. It's all about perspective. If I like what you believe in, you are a person who perseveres. If I think what you believe in is foolish, I call you a stubborn person. That's It's all about a subjective perspective. Yeah, in yeshiva, I remember somebody once told me, he said, if this guy said wouldn't have money, they would call him a meshugana. Now he's worth a billion dollars, they call him eccentric. <laughs> you're right, you're right. We disagree with people, we say they're stubborn. We agree with them, we say they persevere. But it's really a question I have to ask myself. Am I being stubborn or am I persevering? It's a very big difference. Stubbornness is a weakness. It's not a real value. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm stubborn because I'm afraid to compromise. It's coming from from cover-ups. Again, it's coming from a place of defenses. I'm trying to defend myself, so I have to be stubborn. Why, why am I stubborn? I'm stubborn because I feel you're going to control me, you're going to abuse me. It's coming from a place of weakness, from a place of meekness, and I have to examine what that's about. All stubborn people, they're afraid to give in, they're afraid to compromise, and it's a terrible, terrible setback. Perseverance is very different. Perseverance is... I'm not afraid to compromise. I'm happy to compromise. But if I think I have a cure for cancer, and if I think I can help illuminate 
and brighten the lives of individuals, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to be quiet. If I see abuse happening in my midst, if I see men who are tormenting their wives and not giving them a get, for example, right? So all the bullies can bully me and do whatever they want. It's irrelevant because truth prevails. Abuse will not prevail. People abusing their wives, it's just not going to prevail. God is stronger than abusers. Truth is stronger than abusers. That's not being stubborn. (laughs) That's called, we all need perseverance to fight molesters, abusers, criminals, people who disrespect their spouses, whether it's wives who behave inappropriately with husbands or husbands who behave inappropriately with wives. Whatever it is, people who, who are just doing the wrong thing, it's not about judging anybody, we all have to, we all have to persevere. But when somebody, when somebody is refusing to give a get for years, this is stubbornness. It's not perseverance. It's a stubbornness that's coming from pain. Now we all have pain. It's very hard to give a get. I understand. I understand. Somebody told me the other day they haven't given a get for a few years and they said, do you know the pain of giving a get to a wife who you were married to so many years? And I understand, my, and my heart melted. My heart melted. This is like a, a statement that my, my whole life was a waste. All my dreams were crumbled. And the answer is, it's true. It's true. And we could sob for a week, for a month, for a day, because it's, it is. It's very, very difficult. It's very painful. But I can't allow my pain to turn into the fuel that causes torment and pain to somebody else that just does not... It's just unjust. It does not make sense. It defies all morality, all common sense, and everything we stand for as people, as Jews, as as civilized individuals. So I think this is how I would define the difference between stubbornness and perseverance. Next question. What you said about MS and Sheker, the difference, is amazing. I love it. I'm going to put that on my refrigerator. That's good, and uh, I'll try to put it in my heart. But the refrigerator is a good beginning. Okay, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us, literally from all over the world. It's an honor and privilege to be able to learn Torah with you and grow together. And I wish you all a beautiful and meaningful and inspiring day, a day filled with good dreams, with positive dreams, with empowering dreams. I'll conclude with a line I heard from Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, Adin Evan Yisrael of blessed memory. Either I heard, I heard it from him or I, yeah, I heard it from him. This is a, such a beautiful line. He said, it says in Tehillim, we say it every morning, don't, don't touch, don't bother my Mashiachs, my anointed ones. So the Gemara says in Shabbos Kofiotes, Elu Tinoikos Shalbes Rabban. My Mashiachs are the little kinderlach, the little children. What does that mean? God calls them Mashiachs. Why? So Rabbi Adin said the following. Such a beautiful Torah. He said, every child dreams. And the dreams of every child consist of basically two types of dreams. Either I'm going to be Mashiach or I'll bring Mashiach. Either I'm going to be the one to usher in a new world era or I'm going to help I'm going to help in some way to bring the world to a place of goodness and redemption and oneness. He says, that's what we dream as as children. Every child, when you're looking out that window, 
You're dreaming of that innocent, pure world with no corruption, with no politics, with no pettiness, with no conflict, with no negative toxicity and abuse and injustice. Because what happens is we grow up and now we go into survival mode. Now it's just about, you know, paying the bills. Dinner is not ready. Nobody, the cleaning lady didn't show up. We have a problem with this situation, problem with this situation. Distressed is anxiety. So the prophet tells us, Never, even as an adult, should you play around, should you tamper with, should you contaminate that Mashiach inside of you, the child inside of you. We all have that child inside of us that still dreams of either being Mashiach or bringing Mashiach. But as we grow up, we eclipse that childlike spark. Don't damage, don't corrupt, don't stifle, don't repress, don't silence that inner dream, that inner child in you that really is craving to be an ambassador and a beacon of light and love and hope. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.